News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, as you know, Aaron O'Toole is officially the leader of the federal conservative party. His focused challenging Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Parliament, we know, is returning with a speech from the throne on September 23rd. Aaron O'Toole is with us right now to talk for the next few moments. Thank you so much and congratulations on your new role. Thank you very much, Joe. Uh, one thing le- uh, to get the leadership, to win the leadership of a party, when there is another election, we don't know when that's going to happen at this point. What's your biggest challenge now in trying to win that election? Well, I've got to get out there and meet Canadians, hear from them, particularly past uh, the, the COVID first wave, how small businesses are, how families are doing, uh, are people ready to transition off these programs? How are the state of certain industries? I know in BC, you know, softwood lumber, we need a deal. Um, Trade. There's a number of things I have to do because I'm not a career politician, Jill. I've only been in politics about seven years. I was in the military. I was in the private sector. I've done a lot of work with charities and nonprofits. And I'm sort of a roll-up-the-sleeves doer. I'm not a celebrity, so my name's not commonplace. But when people meet me, they know I love the country. I've got a track record of getting things done, and that's exactly what we need right now uh, with record deficits and, and an uncertain world. Uh, and a lot of the, the campaign promises uh, aren't focused on the pandemic, maybe are pre-pandemic. Uh, one of those was to focus on criminals and to crack down on certain offenders. What would you do differently when it comes to the criminal code in this country? Well, I see the criminal code as, you know, a lawyer and as a parent of young children in two ways. There's violent criminals and violent crime and property and circumstance crime. I I, want to work on rehabilitation for people that have a mental health issue or or a property crime out of circumstance. I treat those differently. We've got to be focused on, on, you know, improving them, rehabilitating. But if someone takes a a life of a child or is involved in a violent sexual uh, assault things like that, they have violated their fellow citizen. And I think there is an expectation from a public safety standpoint, from a denunciation of that conduct standpoint, that we have to have much more serious approach to it. You know, they're very different when you violate the essential human rights of someone else. And so that's how I look at criminal justice. I think most Canadians do as well, because you hear outrage when child killers are are transferred to, you know, medium or minimal security Uh, after just a couple of years of their sentence, there has to be a a reasonable and principled approach to criminal justice. Uh, You've talked about uh, criminalizing blockades. We've certainly seen many of those here in BC. What would that look like? It would look like defending freedom of speech and, and the freedom to protest. That's important, but that doesn't give you a right to put thousands of people out of work. You know, there was a cement plant in my riding in southern Ontario that was about to lay off a huge number of workers uh, because of the shutdown of rail blockades in Ontario based on a dispute that originally started in B.C. That's inappropriate, it's unfair, and it should be illegal. You shouldn't be able to take your protest into acts of vandalism against our national economy. So I think most Canadians agree entirely. So things like bridges, uh, railways, airports... You can't make your political point by shutting down these public service elements. And so we'll criminalize that type of of illegal blockading. 
And I think that will send a signal. I, I, I love a vigorous democratic debate, but you can't hurt the livelihoods of, of millions of Canadians to make a point. Uh, but what do you mean when you say criminalize in that police could move in, they wouldn't need an injunction? What would actually change? Um, it would change because it would be a serious offense. Right now, the reason there isn't a move in quickly is generally it's trespass or nuisance is what law enforcement look at. And those are very, very simple, uh, you know, minor fine-like uh, crimes. This will be a criminal code provision. You know, Jason Kenney introduced a similar measure in Alberta based in part on my proposals. But the federal government controls the criminal code. And this type of, of action, it is kind of like economic sabotage in a way. So how can we have a responsible debate? Uh, I do that in Parliament every day with people I respect but don't always agree with. We need to be able to say, you can protest. We have a great democratic debate but you can't, to score points, hurt the livelihoods of, of thousands or millions of Canadians. So a criminal code, more serious offense, will allow the police to, to, to move in and break it up faster. You have talked about taking a hard line with China. That's also a big issue, not only for all Canadians, but here in BC, Meng Wanzhou remains uh, on house arrest. What would you do differently when it comes to Michael Spavor, Michael Kovrig still being held in China? How would you handle that file differently? Well, I would have handled it differently from the start. I was the foreign affairs shadow minister. Uh, I was very critical of Trudeau uh, not reaching out at a serious level quickly. Um, I was critical of his naive view towards the communist regime in China. I think virtually every diplomat Canada has had in Beijing in the last generation has said Trudeau is out of step and naive when it comes to China. And it's hurt us. It hurt, it's hurt those two citizens. So we need a much more serious approach. I would look at, like many other countries are, using Magnitsky sanctions against certain officials in the regime, uh, certain ones that have justice attached to their title. Uh, There's no adherence to justice, uh, the rule of law, human rights in communist China, and we should not put up with that facade. So sanctioning of them, it may seem like a symbolic measure, but as Prime Minister, I would also talk to my Five Eyes and, and G7 counterparts to say we we can no longer turn a blind eye to to the to the bad actions of of the communist regime when it comes to the treatment of citizens human rights the uyghurs hong kong uh you know cyber attacks it it, we have to get real with china and that will never happen under justin trudeau would you when you talk about sanctions though would you go so far then uh, using that to uh, to seize assets to seize property of chinese nationals living here um, we would look at all options. The, the, in my platform, I outlined uh, a number of officials that, that are associated with the administration of justice, at least according to the communist uh, regime's sort of categorization of jobs. That would be a symbolic measure to, to sanction, like we have with, with other countries like Venezuela and Russia. Uh, the Magnitsky sanction technique was actually introduced by conservatives, and the, the liberals finally passed it. It's been used as a diplomatic measure to send a real signal, and I think that's where we're at with the two Michaels over 600 days in prison. Uh, they haven't had consular access in months because of COVID. I, I really want them to know and their families that we can stand up in a smarter, more effective way for them.
going back to, to the pandemic and the economic turmoil that our country, that the world is in right now, uh, there's a new report even out just this morning from the Canadian Association of Broadcasters looking at the broadcasting industry saying that it's in dire fin- <clears throat> financial straits. I know you've talked in the past about uh, defunding or taking funding away from the CBC. Uh, do you feel like there is a need for federal help? Because it has been a contentious issue as far as federal financial help for broadcasting. Well, it it is a bit perverse that the private media world has been in trouble before COVID. Uh, Talk radio does well because you've got a lot of people captured in their car in the lower mainland. So you guys have been doing much better than private sector print and other other means. Justin Trudeau was putting hundreds of millions of dollars more into the state broadcaster who was competing with you for advertising dollars. And I don't think that's fair, particularly in the digital age that we're in. So uh, I've said it's time to reform and modernize, and that means taking the state subsidy out of certain areas of of the media in CBC, English television, and namely, and and digital, stealing all the digital ads. I think that will help broadcasters, that will help the private media landscape, and I'm willing to work with with any sectors that have been acutely impacted uh, by COVID. My focus will be on retaining and growing jobs. Um, and that's really got to be the focus uh, over the next few years for our country. Does it get frustrating for you that no matter what you're talking about in some scenarios, there are some members of the media uh, that will still only ask you questions about what women can legally do with their bodies and marching in parades? Well, Jill, I, I'm, I'm glad you have because people uh, need to know who I am, need to know where I stand. You know, I won the conservative leadership. It was the wee hours of the morning, but uh, I won with a strong mandate, and I've always stood up for women's rights, for LGBT rights. I'm a liberty-based conservative. I, I, I want to defend Canadians' rights, m- much like I did symbolically in, in the military. You know, I, I don't pick or choose what I fight for for Canada. I fight for Canadians. And So I want us to be able to focus on the economy, focus on the great discussion you and I have been having on everything from the situation with the two Michaels, the economic situation out of COVID. So if people want to sort of say, where is he with respect to to social issues or or human rights, I, I have no problem answering those questions. I'm also someone that this is refreshing. I respect people that don't necessarily agree with my views. And I think we need more of that in politics these days. All right. To Aaron O'Toole, we'll leave it there. We're right out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jill. That is Aaron O'Toole, the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, who got a COVID-19 test. The nasal swab described it as when you're eating sushi, but you accidentally eat a whole bunch of wasabi and get that burning sensation in your nose. Not the nicest thing to have happened. And a lot of people, I think, would like to see a different kind of test, maybe a saliva test in this country. Doesn't look like that's going to be happening anytime soon, even though in the United States, five different saliva tests for the virus have been approved. Well, Dr. Michael Glogauer joins me now, an advocate for using the saliva testing for diagnostics. And uh, he joins me on the line. He's a professor in the Faculty of Dentistry at the University of Toronto. Good morning to you. Good morning. How easy would it be if we're seeing this happen in other countries to have saliva testing here in Canada? So I I really think it's just around the corner. So I can tell you, um, you know, because tests need to be approved at the Health Canada level and then adopted by the provinces after that, that there's a sort of two layers of, of bureaucracy or uh, 
to go through on a, on a governmental level. And I can tell you that after, you know, with the noise from some of the articles that have come out recently, that Health Canada is moving extremely quickly to uh, enable some of these tests to be integrated into the system. And can we tell from other jurisdictions where they're being used or do we, are we confident that they are the same reliability or, or perhaps better re- reliability than the current test? So that's a great question. So uh, there's actually been a lot of testing, a lot of research that's come out on these saliva tests. And they looked at their sensitivity and specificity, especially in the early phases of, uh, of the infection in a, in a given individual. It's actually very similar to the nasopharyngeal swabs or the brain tickles. So I, I think that there's, uh, they appear to be very, very positive. And the timing has come into question, too, with getting a test. People want the results as soon as possible. Is the time of the results similar? So it's extremely similar. So it's a good question because, you know, the next barrier are these, the next level are these saliva tests, which then go through the same sort of laboratory processing as the nasopharyngeal swabs. But the, the, the next frontier after that are using these sort of saliva samples where the testing is done at source right in the palm of your hand, the equivalent to a pregnancy test. And that, that'll be the next level. These tests are being uh, developed and, uh, as we speak, but they'll be for sh- certainly more, many more months away before those are going to be readily available. Talking about uh, how people might do a saliva test and send it off to uh, an Ancestry website, you could maybe do it at home and send it off to a lab? So that's exactly uh, the, the test that we that we're that we're trying to get through Health Canada is one where the, the oral swab it's actually an oral swab test that can be done uh, by parents on children, for example, or certainly at home, and then that could be collected and uh, sort of uh, couriered to the laboratory where the, the the test would take place, and so you'd get the result now as as now within say 24 hours. And when do you think time timeline wise, when might we see a test like that or a saliva test in Canada? I, I would say, uh, hopefully, being optimistic, uh, within a month or two. All right. Well, Dr. Glogauer, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time and for joining us. My pleasure. That is Dr. Michael Glogauer, professor in the Faculty of Dentistry at the University of Toronto. Well, as we were just discussing, there will be an announcement later today at 1.45. We are going to hear from BC's Education Minister with some more details on what the return to school is going to look like in this province. And there has been a lot of talk about online learning, or at least incorporating that into some kind of learning plan. Well, Yumiko Morai is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at SFU. Uh, Joining us now to talk about what parents who opt for online learning can expect. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. Hi, well, this has been something that I know a lot of parents have been trying online learning. Can it actually work as a substitute for in-class learning? Can parents make that shift or kids, students make that shift? Um, I think that's a very sort of tricky question and can they make a shift? I think they certainly can, but uh, the question is um, whether it is a sort of substitute. It works as a substitute, but it's not a sort of complete replacement of in-class learning. So I'd like to think of it as something that should sort of stay around as a supplement to in-class learning. Online learning is, of course, playing an important role as a substitute during pandemic, but sort of because practices researchers have shown that there are also general benefits um, to online learning. For example, it gives uh, 
flexibility to students. It allows students to learn and their own pace and time and place, their preference of their preference, and also expands um, possibility of social learning. They might be uh, learning alone in front of the computer, but in online learning, they can ask questions uh, to their peers sometimes or sometimes uh, someone beyond their classmates, any questions they have. Um, it also um, helps them uh, connect learning to their uh, living environments, uh, which can promote engagement and deeper exploration. So what is the biggest challenge then, even if it's used as, along with in-class learning, what's the biggest challenge when we're talking about o- online learning? Yeah, that's a really good question. There are certainly a lot of challenges. Um, I think the most critical is that there are many families that do not have sufficient technical infrastructure to participate in online learning in the same way other kids can. And so the schools and communities need to work together to make sure this gap won't become a longer-term education gap. And it also requires a lot of agency on the student side. Um, they need to manage their time. They need to be sort of uh, self-motivated to continue learning as teachers cannot manage classrooms the same way they would do in person. So this poses challenges for parents and kids who are not used to this way of learning or parents who don't, do not have the luxury of time to support their kids. Right. Um, but I also think um, this is also an, an opportunity for us uh, as a, and educators to rethink how we teach and support kids in their learning process. Um, we need to prepare them to be self-directed uh, creative learners and by cultivating their interest and teaching them how to sort of really be strategic on um, their own development and learning. Because I'm sure it does work. Some are more able to manage their time and have that self-discipline better than others. Mm-hmm. Certainly. All right. There will be a sort of chance of gap, yes. Mm-hmm. All right. So we'll leave it there for today. Yumiko Murai, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, Yumiko Murai is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at Simon, Fr- Simon Fraser University. Curious your thoughts about this. I know a lot of parents are going to be uh, tuning in and listening. You can hear it right here on CKNW at 145 when BC's education minister uh, speaks and talks a bit more about the back-to-school learning plan. A lot of questions still about that plan. And as Von Palmer was mentioning, the Souk School District uh, has uh, kind of put their plan out there ahead of that announcement, talking about the one-eighth model and what that particular district is going to be doing. Well, some good news, according to numbers released from Statistics Canada, a surge in business for restaurants looking at May to June, still not where they were pre-pandemic, but it does appear people are returning to in-dining, in-room dining, and some other parts of the restaurant industry. Ian Tostenson joins me now, the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. We should change our name. It's too hard to say. In the morning, isn't it? We just a beast RFA. <laughs> I feel sorry for you. Yeah, there you go. But, uh, I know. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, this looks like some good news. And what are these are numbers from Stats Canada? I would imagine you're hearing from actual restaurant owners and people in the business as well. Do the two match? Well, they do. So um, I'll go kind of slow because I don't want to become a statistics. You know, go get this morning in the early mornings, but. Um, we have looked at statistics in Canada from May to June. So these are Canadian numbers. And the really good news is that 
um, restaurant sales are up 26% or uh, the big number, almost $4 billion uh, month over month. So that's great. But then if you go backwards and you say, well, how does that compare to last year, of June last year, we're still off 37% in sales. So the good news on that front is we're moving forward. The bad news is, is that we're not anywhere near. We're both, you know, 40% lower than we were last year. Now, if you remember, um, March was a shutdown. Um, British Columbia did not um, shut down completely. We allowed, or the, the, Dr. Henry allowed takeout and delivery. So BC was less affected in Canada as other provinces, but the other interesting stat was, because, um, you know, we often get asked how many restaurants will make it through. We're starting to see uh, a decrease in the number of closures. So April, and, and these numbers in Canada mirror British Columbia. There was 56% of the restaurants in Canada were shut down. And then in May, it was, um, it went to uh, just about 30%. And then in June now, uh, we're just less than 30%. So we're starting to see less closures, more businesses opening, which is a reflection of demand. And so that's good news. If you look at uh, in the segment, because you talked about that at the beginning, Jill, um, if you you look at full service, limited service, which is your sort of quick service restaurants and drinking places, the largest dollar impact was in full service restaurants, indicating that we want to go back to full service restaurants. We miss full service restaurants. So that's up 58%. Limited sales or or quick service are up uh, 12%, but then, they basically did not close. And if you remember, um, you know, most of those restaurants drive through like A&W's McDonald's. They had a very robust business uh, throughout this. Drinking establishments are way up, which is your pubs and your bars. And that's because they were just basically 100% closed. So that's not surprising at all. So those are all, these are all really good indicators that uh, the public want to get back at it. And it probably says to us that, there's more consumer confidence about going to restaurants than we had we had thought. How much of it do you think is also uh, the fact that so many patios opened, uh, the the pro- protocols that were brought in to make people feel safe if they did return? Oh, that's, that's a major part of it. And in fact, we're having discussions uh, uh, as, as we speak with the city of Vancouver and other municipalities about, in quotation, the winter patios. How do we continue that? Because people feel very comfortable uh the outdoor space is better and uh, we're actually looking at the models which i don't recall quite how it was done but uh what we did in the during the olympics uh for restaurants and outdoor restaurants and you know it, that was a very a very good program so that has certainly helped for sure the problem we have here is bc sales um year to date are down almost 37 percent or 40 percent and i when i looked at these numbers last night again this morning it just strikes me as a bit coincidental because that's about the the limitation on capacity that a restaurant is operating under. So if we look at, you know, uh, the regulations, which which says no more than six people and two meters between tables, effectively you have a restaurant uh, that's operating at maybe 60% capacity uh, at max. And isn't it interesting that our sales in BC are off, almost off 40%. So in a world of no COVID, I would think that says to me, if we could open restaurants 100% capacity, we'd be kind of back to where we were last year. So that's having an effect of that closure and that physical distancing. But um, on the other side of that one is that's what we have to do. We're doing it very well, I think. And we'll, we'll continue to do that, although that's the gravy for restaurants. That 
that extra third or 40% of capacity is where money's made. So that's why patios, maybe winter patios and continued emphasis on takeout and delivery is going to be critical for the fall months. Do restaurants, are they seeing, though, any reduction in costs as far as if they don't need, if you're not at full capacity, you probably wouldn't need full staff, or have they been able to take part in any of the federal programs to help them through this? Yeah, absolutely. The, the biggest program, uh, uh, the biggest benefit has been the, uh, the wage subsidy program, which is um, you know, up to $58,000. Um, the federal government does wage subsidies. So that allowed restaurants to bring back a lot of people. So we uh, we got saved. We, we we were able to see savings because of wage subsidy, um, and we're trying to hire as many people as want. You get this: we are actually faced. This just makes me crazy. We're starting to see a labor shortage already in restaurants. Remember, we had one before. Um, we were addressing it through skilled worker uh, immigration, and we're starting to see it in places like Victoria and Vancouver. And part of it is that the uh, labor shortage never went away. And number two is is that the effect of CERB on restaurants, we're seeing a lot of people saying, you know what, I'll catch you at the end of the summer. Uh, we've seen the Okanagan, you know, a lot of people saying we go to the beach, I don't want to work in restaurants. So it's been, a, it's, it's been an ongoing problem. And I think we'll probably be looking, and this is so crazy, right, uh, yeah. at, at skilled immigration again in the fall to help fill these jobs. Now, uh, they are in kitchens. There's not front of the, it's not front of the house staff. It's mainly in kitchens. It's more technical. But, uh, but but nevertheless, um, we are starting to see some real labor challenges already. Well, are you concerned, though, if that's happening with people on CERB, once CERB winds down and shifts to the different programs and the changes with EI, are you concerned that, I mean, we've had the, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business come out saying if you're working part-time in a restaurant, rather than go back to work and make a couple hundred dollars, you could go on EI and make way more? Well, yeah, it, it, this makes sense to me, uh, you know, because I think, you know, because a lot of our uh, workers, they are um, you know, students going to school, wanting to make some extra money, flexible work schedules. So I don't really understand that. I, I mean, to me, I, I would, if I were in their situation, I would be doing all I could to be with my employer to get those hours, not just to take, you know, fill in a shift for uh, during the week to sort of top up my CERB. But um, the, the federal government going to have to deal with this. I think it's a bigger problem than that it appears right now. Uh, do you think that uh, the changes will stick around? You mentioned uh, the patios trying to shift to winter patios. Uh, restaurants have been talking about off-sales being uh, a way, a source of revenue. Uh, the, this was supposed to stop in October. So how confident are you that these changes will actually stick around? The government's been in British Columbia really good about checking in with us to make sure, you know, can we, should we change the programs? And we're saying don't make any changes. Um, We've we got to be really careful. I see that Ken Peacock was talking this morning about taxes and any other increases. We've got to hold the line. We've got to continue to add, let, let these restaurants and small businesses uh, enjoy the benefits of you know, more flexible delivery and alcohol sales uh, until, you know, and indefinitely. I think we're going to see, uh, we're going to be into this for a year at least. And the patios are interesting because we're now looking at those patios that were approved to operate this year. Uh, the concept would be, let's just approve them now for next year so we don't have to do any of the paperwork when the sun shines next spring, the restaurants can reopen and away we go. So there's been really good cooperation, uh, not just with the provincial government, but, but with the, uh, the municipal government in Vancouver, uh, understanding that. Because in Vancouver, we've got a major problem. I mean, not only are we lacking business, but we're lacking customers in the, in the form of tourism and also uh, business people who aren't downtown in droves, as you're well aware. 
All right, uh, Ian, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much uh, for your time. Awesome, Jill. Take care. All right, you too. (laughs) That is Ian Tostenson, the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Thanks for being with us. Well, as we know, and we've talked about this on the program before, the pandemic meant a shortage of temporary foreign workers. Many people couldn't travel freely to Canada. That came as a crit- at a critical time for farmers when it came to planting and harvesting. So what does this actually mean for the future of food prices, for the future of food production right here in Canada? Well, joining me on the line is Robert Falconer, a researcher at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. Robert, thanks so much for being with Happy to join you. Uh, You've done some research on this because, uh, and and talking about something that I think is is, seems simple enough that, well, if there's no temporary foreign workers and there are the Canadians that are out of work, why don't those two cancel each other out? But it's just not that simple. No, it isn't. There's a number of things going on here. Uh, The the short term trend is that a lot of people who are currently on the Canada Emergency Response Benefit (CERB) or other forms of employment insurance are hoping to eventually return to the jobs they held before the pandemic. They're not necessarily looking forward to go on to, uh, to seasonal, highly physically intensive jobs on the farm. So that's, that's the, the short-term difficulty. Longer term, however, there's a trend in the agricultural sector where a, a huge number of people have been exiting the sector since really the end of the Second World War. Uh, we're not just talking about employees, but we've lost about almost 900,000 workers from the sector since the Second World War. And most of these are actually unpaid family members and, and, and small farmers. And, and being able to replace those with a large share of, of domestic workers simply isn't possible in either a short or, or long time frame. So how do you, so it sounds like we already had this problem and our issues were rising before the pandemic came and made things even more difficult. So what do you think needs to be done? Well, there's a number of things um, that that currently are already are being done. A uh, number of people will raise the idea of, well, farmers need to simply raise wages. And I, I need to say and point out there, they have been doing that for a number of years now. Um, further interventions that they could do uh, will be uh, financing, of course, the, uh, the further mechanization of farms. So there's a lot of innovation going on in the agricultural sector, and certainly more needs to be done there perhaps supported through through government subsidies. Uh, short term, there also needs to be a protection for workers. Uh, the, the temporary foreign worker program has really become a pillar of the agricultural sector, and we simply can't cut off the number of foreign workers arriving in Canada unless we want to see major production cuts. So taking steps to protect worker lives um, is going to be important. BC has actually been one of the better provinces in Canada with regards to this, where they've uh, the BC government has approached farmers and, and told them that they would help share the costs of, of housing uh, workers who are isolating in hotels. Um, but certainly more needs to be done in this sector here to, to ensure long-term viability of, of Canadian agriculture. Do you think there's a bit of a disconnect when you talk about wages and the fact that, yes, farms have been upping their wages, but at the same time, people want tomatoes at a certain price. People want food to be at a certain price, which if you want to pay people a higher salary, you want to pay these wages, does that not automatically mean that the food is going to cost more? Absolutely. Um, It also means that uh, if it becomes too prohibitive for, for producers to, to sell at a certain price, uh, they might simply cut production. And we've actually seen stories of that with the labor shortage this season uh, with farmers in, in British Columbia, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec choosing to let food rot in the fields or simply not to farm it because they simply can't, can't farm it at a certain price. So that's certainly an implication there. 
And again, there, there's a, a story here that I think is often lost when we think about why, well, why not just employ more Canadians, where it needs to again, be pointed out that a, a huge portion of this sector is actually relies on, on the ownership of small farmers and the unpaid labor of their family members, their kids, their, their spouses, uh, and other family workers. And it, when one farm buys out another farm, you don't get to keep the family that, that previously worked it and, and trying to find Canadians to work at a certain price is, is going to be a struggle. Do we over kind of over romanticize this idea of the small farm too? And, and like you said, the family working on the farm, and this is a way of life that's maybe been passed down generations. Where in reality, we have a global market. There's a reason that we don't grow avocados here. We can import them and buy them for two bucks when they go on sale. Uh, should we be focused on what we're good at at making, what we're good at growing, rather than trying to do everything? Absolutely. I think there's a comparative advantage here in, in Canada with certain crops. A, a big one, of course, in BC is the uh, the fruit industry. Um, over in Alberta, we have a lot of cattle ranching here as well. And I certainly think we, we focus on those. And a large number of these are actually very large industrial outfits. Um, they, that they're, they're massive enterprises and, and uh, we, we need a certain labor force uh, to work them. Um, and Canadians don't really want to do those jobs mechanization can only take us to a certain point. So at some point, we need to be looking at for a labor pool elsewhere. And, and where should we be looking then? Well, the, the classic one that we've been doing since the 1960s is, uh, is places like Mexico, um, Jamaica, and, and otherwise. One thing that, that we've looked at in this paper is why not provide a pathway to some of these folks who are coming here for five, ten years uh, after repeated seasons, provide them a, a pathway to becoming permanent residents here in Canada. A lot of Canadians with Ukrainian ancestry, Mennonite ancestry, et cetera, uh, were the benefits of a, a large-scale agricultural immigration program. And uh, I think going forward, COVID-19 looks like it's going to be here for at least another couple years. Uh, workers from abroad might be a little more hesitant uh, to come in, this, in the uh, next year, as they've already been hesitant to come this year. And uh, we might be competing with other countries to get a certain level of labor to come up here to Canada providing them the prospect of settling here permanently with their families might be something we might want to consider. Uh, do you know then, are there other countries that are more competitive on that front or do offer that to temporary foreign workers? No, it's actually not a, it's a, the trend in, mo- in most countries is actually to provide um, short-term seasonal work, uh, visas that allow them to come up to either Canada, the United States. Over in, in the UK, it's a lot of workers from Romania and Eastern Europe but I love them to come on a very short-term basis, but not a lot to settle on a, on a long-term basis. And while I, I certainly think, can understand maybe Canadian hesitancy to to allow someone to move here permanently, permanently if they're only here for a couple of weeks. But again, it needs to be emphasized. A lot of people are are coming year after year uh, for months at a time, and uh, and we might again we might be competing in the coming years with other countries seeking to to help bring workers to help harvest Canadian produce. Uh, in the meantime, then, do you think food prices will go up? Certainly, and I think we are starting to see that in certain sectors. I was checking the consumer price index for various food commodities the other day, and um, the big ones that we're, we're seeing is, is meat, uh, dairy, or is another one, eggs, etc. Um, I think in the as with the onset of, of fall, um, we're going to probably start seeing higher price in fruits and vegetables um, and uh, more imported food. Uh, as as our production simply hasn't been able to keep up this year, uh, and these are I should say these are not just the regular price hikes we see uh, that happen year after year, but these are are above and beyond what we've seen. 
All right. Uh, we'll leave it there for today. Robert Falconer, thanks so much for your time. Happy to join. Thank you very much. Robert Falconer is a researcher at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. The BC Chamber of Commerce, uh, as mentioned, has released a list of recommendations that could help the province, uh, for the province, to help businesses recover from the many negative impacts of the pandemic. And the Director of Policy Development at the Chamber, Dan Baxter, is on the line with us now to talk a little bit more about this. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, let's go through some of the, the recommendations. Uh, when we're talking about taxes, uh, one, of the re- one of those is a made-in-BC value-added tax. What would this look like and what would it do? Yeah, so basically it would replace the antiquated PST, which uh, is basically a tax on tax uh, throughout the supply chain for business. So basically businesses pay the tax and they can't recoup that money back into their business. So what we'd want to do is to, to basically go to some sort of system that allows business to, to basically get input credits for those taxes. Uh, but we wanted to do it in a way that's made for BC, uh, makes it work for BC business in particular. So we don't want to go back to things like HST. We want it to be made here in BC to work for BC. Uh, you've also talked about property taxes, and this has long been a concern of, of businesses and residents alike, this high idea of the taxing for best possible use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and there are a couple issues around the property tax that we were hearing from our members uh, that the best and highest use is obviously one of the bigger ones right now, especially more in the urban center like Vancouver, where a small business, a single story, maybe it's a, a bakery of some sort, they get taxed because they're zoned to potentially be a 40-story tower. And, and of course, that means that they get taxed at that higher rate. And of course, that's really hard if you're just a, a single story, you know, small business on Main Street to have to pay that that large tax bill. It could be you know, anywhere from twice to three times the amount that you would be actually should be paying for your taxes. So, so that's definitely one thing when, you know, before the crisis, it was already an issue. It's obviously just exacerbated now because obviously business is not, uh, not doing as well in terms of uh, people coming through the door. Uh, are you hopeful that you'll see movement on that? Because that is one that we've at least seen addressed in the past, or some politicians, it seem, have realized that that's not a fair way to be taxing businesses. Yeah, and, and credit to the provincial government before they've they've definitely heard we've we've been advocating this before the crisis, and and they definitely picked up on it and have and have been working with small business to figure out a solution. I think where the ask now is it's just really expediting it. We don't need they they come up with a temporary fix that that local governments would have to to buy into. I think really where we're at is we need to get to the permanent solution from the provincial government sooner rather than later. Uh, there's also a call for removing the, the PST on machinery and equipment. How big of an impact would that have? Yeah, you know, and that's our more short-term ask. You know, I think our, our recommendations are a mix of, of things that can be done in the short-term immediate to help stimulate the economy and some longer-term uh, asks that are about setting us on the right path for just long-term growth. And the PST removal on machinery, equipment, technology, that's a sh- really short-term ask. It's about $600 million dollars. But really, the, the benefit there is that a lot of you know businesses, as they look to hopefully retool, want to maybe become more productive, um, you know, as they kind of rethink their their office workspace or their 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 manufacturing space, they might need to invest in some new equipment. The, the, so that basically means that we can get a lot of, uh, of of upgrades that make workers more productive, make business more productive in the short term, which should hopefully get uh, uh, get people uh, back to work and and earning more money and and businesses earning more money so they can invest and grow. Is there more of a focus, do you think, on these short-term plans or short-term ideas to get business back and then kind of get to a point where business is, is hanging on and then move to the long-term, or do they have to be done at the same time? Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, some of these might have to be done in parallel. Um, you know, I think for us, 
there there is this this idea that we'll need probably short term immediate stimulus, something similar to probably what we saw in the two thousand eight Great Recession. So that's why we wanted to make sure we had a mix of of long term infrastructure projects uh, on the books because those are some of the best ways to get you know shovels and ground, get people working who are then spending money. Um, some ideas like the PST made in BC value added tax to replace the PST. That might be something that needs to be more parked for two, three years down the road. But let's start the conversation now about what that could look like. In the short term, that's where the PST removal on machinery and equipment is an immediate boost for, for business. But there's also other ideas that we have around being more inclusive, that we want to make sure that there are people who have physical disabilities, they have access to the workplace, because there are lots of great people there who are, are looking and wanting to work to get back to work themselves. But maybe their, their workspace isn't the most accessible. So there's an opportunity to invest some money there, get some contracting, uh, construction jobs going there to make those workplaces more accessible. And then it has that longer term benefit to get people with disabilities into the workforce and contributing as well. All right, uh, Dan, we'll leave it there. Uh, we're right out of time, but thanks so much for joining us to talk more about thanks. this. Thank you, Joe. It was a pleasure. That is Dan Baxter. He is a director of policy development with the BC Chamber of Commerce. And uh, that means we are making sense of the markets with Lori Pinkowski, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Canaccord Genuity. You can contact her team at 604-695-LORI or visit their website at pinkowski.ca. Lori, good morning to you. Angel, how are you? Long time no talk. I know, I know. Great. Uh, glad to get this chance to, to chat with you. Let's get right to it. Uh, what's happening on the markets? Yeah, you know, markets are a little mixed today, but U.S. markets continue higher, uh, about 1.5% uh, over the past week. Uh, but things have slowed a bit, of course. We're in August. We have got lower volumes. Uh, the technology sector is, again, leading the way. We saw Salesforce uh, is one of these companies that reported a strong beat yesterday after market, and the stock was up 13% just in one day. Uh, Canadian markets have lagged a bit over the last week uh, due to gold and the material sector kind of pulling back. But if you're looking at overall markets in the U.S., uh, there's a lot of strong economic data, actually. Manufacturing and services are expensive expanding greater than expected. And of course, there's also, you know, optimism around uh, COVID vaccine. We've got uh, over 165 vaccine candidates with 32 of those in human trials. Uh, and uh, a small number are even in phase three trials. So there's a thought out there that we may see a vaccine before the end of the year. Again, you know, if we see one, whether uh, that's distributed to everybody, uh, you know, that's going to take uh, quite some time still. So we're going to have to live with the virus, of course, but markets want to see a vaccine uh, approved out there. Mm-hmm. So the good news that we're seeing that uh, continuing higher in the U.S. Uh, what about when we're talking about stalled negotiations, uh, extensions on unemployment and other benefits? Yeah, you know, markets remain resilient, even in the face of any negative news like those stalled negotiations. Of course, a lot of that has to do with politics, with the U.S. election right around the corner. Uh, So it's kind of to be expected. But of course, they need to come to some sort of agreement because stimulus is still needed. You know, we're not out of this thing and uh, the economy is depending on it. Uh, in my opinion, at this time, I mean, small and medium-sized businesses, uh, you know, you need wage subsidies, you need to put food on the table for families. So, you know, hopefully they can get together and come up to come up with some sort of an agreement uh, so that this can move forward. Um, but again, it looks like it may still take some time because they're still so far apart at this point. Hmm. And, and second quarter earnings, are we seeing kind of better than expected results so far? 
Yeah, way better. Um, you know, again, the bar was set so low uh, because of what happened uh, in the first quarter. And so over uh, 80% of companies beating analyst estimates, which again, lifted markets higher. Uh, the strongest areas of the market have been technology, consumer products, uh, while the weakest areas have been energy, real estate, and financial. So earnings uh, were a lot better than expected. And that's also why we've seen markets uh, rebound the way that they have. Uh, let's shift a little bit um, when we're talking second quarter earnings. So what are we seeing with the Canadian banks? Yeah, four of the five Canadian banks have reported, and we've seen another quarter of declining profits and revenues due to, of course, the impact of the pandemic. Uh, revenues were down over 10% um, for many of the banks, while profits were down even more, uh, over 20% for some. Uh, BMO beat expectations. Um, so did Royal Bank. They had the strongest report. Uh, and it's really a mixed bag of stock performance across the board right now when looking at the banks. Uh, you've got Royal Bank that's recovered quite a bit, where you've got Bank of Montreal still down, you know, 18% year to date or so. So in terms of the Canadian banks, um, you know, the positive is, is that, um, you know, their investment banking or say their wealth management sides have been making money as the markets have rebounded. Uh, but you, they're holding cash back really uh, for loan loss provisions going into the next quarter and thereafter. So in terms of the banks, I still think, you know, there's a lot of risk there going to next year. Uh, should there be another lockdown, anything like that? I mean, that of course uh, affects people and their ability to pay mortgages and loans. Uh, so for us, still, we, we have decided to step aside from the banks at this point, even when we see some of them recovering. It's just to us, there's too much risk in that sector. And there's just other areas that uh, are really thriving in this environment. When you think of like Amazon and Clorox and Walmart and Costco, uh, we prefer to be in those kinds of businesses at this point, um, because we can understand uh, the profitability going forward compared to the banks at this point. It's interesting, because when you look at the banks, just they're, they're so big and you think of them being so resilient, but you're right. We don't know what's going to happen in the fall, what's going to happen with this virus and, and, and that idea of, yes, they probably will at some point fully recover, but when will that happen? Well, exactly. I mean, we see major headwinds still, um, and that could become more apparent in 2021 when we see government subsidies for wage and rent expenses. Uh, you know, if they end, uh, that's going to impact people greatly. And, you know, to me, it's like the banks are going to be holding the bag on that one. And, um, you know, if the economic recover, recovery falters, you know, and that stimulus does run out, uh, you know, they're going to be greatly impacted. And many investors look to the banks for income, for dividends, as they tend to pay higher dividends than most companies. Uh, but this approach, it comes with greater risk at this point. And this is why I want to talk about dividends, because I'm getting the question so often uh, that, uh, you know, I want only dividends in my portfolio. And I say, well, that's great. But what happens if those stocks don't perform? And that's kind of the risk you're taking. And I deal with so many retirees where um, dividend-paying stocks are, of course, uh, kind of the uh, the apple of their eye, let's say. And, and I, I tend to agree with that to a certain extent. But you need to make sure that you're in the right sectors and don't just focus on the dividends um, of the companies that you hold. So would you say it's, uh, it's, it sounds like you're saying it can be a safe way, but you really need to know exactly what you're doing? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you look at some of the technology companies out there, you know, they don't pay high dividends. Um, when we're looking at the various sectors, say you look at exchange traded funds to get an idea, you have um, the top three worst performing sectors right now, oil and gas, the average dividend out there is 4.5%, real estate investment trust, 6%, and financials, 3.5%. But they're also the worst performing sectors, uh, down anywhere between kind of 12 to 35% right now, year to date. And you take a look at the flip side, technology on average doesn't pay much of a dividend at all. Uh, that sector's up 44% this year. Or materials, gold, for instance, it doesn't pay a dividend, but it's up 25% this year. So you really had to uh, be specific in choosing which companies you wanted in the portfolio this year and uh, sometimes avoid some of those dividend-paying stocks so that you can actually have a positive return in 2020 so far. So making sure you're, you're targeting and looking at the right sectors. Uh, always. And, and I can't stress that enough. I mean, when you're looking at uh, even dividends for companies, you want to make sure first and foremost that the company is healthy, they're turning a profit, uh, and the dividend is safe, right? Because dividends can be cut. Um, you know, even looking at some of the REITs out there right now, Rio can, um, for instance, the dividend is 9.3%. Well, this, the REIT is down 42% year to date. So yeah, you might be collecting your 9%, but you lost 40% on the stock. So again, is that a good investment strategy long term? No, you know, so you just have to be picky on, on what you're putting into the portfolio. And usually you would have a financial advisor doing this for you. So you just want to make sure that they're proactive, that they're making changes to the portfolio, making sure that you are in the right sectors for the current environment, and not just sticking you in a bunch of dividend paying stocks that may not perform now, but may also not perform over the next six to 12 months. And, and I think probably key words there, the current environment, because again, with the pandemic, who knows what's going to happen in a month or in six months from now? Well, exactly. I, I mean, you just have to be um, kind of flexible uh, as a portfolio manager and really be on top of the news um, and being proactive and also sometimes reactive. You have to make a decision very quickly because uh, news has come out and so on. And so, again, when we're looking at dividends, investing solely for dividends is really not the best approach to investing because um, dividend-paying stocks, uh, you know, can lag the market uh, and can decline. They're not just, you know, safe, right? So you need to make sure that you're in the right areas, that's first and foremost being in the right sectors and avoiding those underperforming sectors as well. And that's great advice, like you said, getting it from a financial advisor too. If somebody comes to you and says, I just want to go into dividends to make sure they know all of the, what you need to know about that. Exactly. You need to um, have a qualified, you know, portfolio manager, financial advisor looking after your money, making the decisions uh, for you or at least with you uh, because they have the experience in doing so. And just picking a basket of dividend paying stocks is, like I said, likely not uh, the best approach. You need to be diversified and you need to have some of those sectors right now uh, that may not have high dividends in order to bring up the return for this year. And in my opinion, over the next uh, six to 12 months as well. All right, uh, Laurie, always uh, so great to chat with you. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you next time I'm, I'm back filling in for Simi. Thanks so much, Jill. And you enjoy the last uh, couple of weeks of summer we got here. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thanks <laughs> Thank again. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Laurie Pinkowski, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Canaccord Genuity. You can contact the Pinkowski Wealth Management Team directly at 604-695-LORIE. That's L-O-R-I. Or you can visit the website at pinkowski.ca. Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, as you know, Aaron O'Toole is officially the 
the leader of the federal Conservative Party, has focused challenging Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Parliament, we know, is returning with a speech from the throne on September 23rd. Aaron O'Toole is with us right now to talk for the next few moments. Thank you so much and congratulations on your new role. Thank you very much, Joe. Uh, one thing le- uh, to get the leadership, to win the leadership of a party, when there is another election, we don't know when that's going to happen at this point. What's your biggest challenge now in trying to win that election? Well, I've got to get out there and meet Canadians, hear from them, particularly past uh, the, the COVID first wave, how small businesses are, how families are doing, uh, are people ready to transition off these programs? How are the state of certain industries? I know in BC, you know, softwood lumber, we need a deal. Um, Trade. There's a number of things I have to do because I'm not a career politician, Jill. I've only been in politics about seven years. I was in the military. I was in the private sector. I've done a lot of work with charities and nonprofits. And I'm sort of a roll-up-the-sleeves doer. I'm not a celebrity, so my name's not commonplace. But when people meet me, they know I love the country. I've got a track record of getting things done, and that's exactly what we need right now uh, with record deficits and, and an uncertain world. Uh, and a lot of the, the campaign promises uh, aren't focused on the pandemic, maybe are pre-pandemic. Uh, one of those was to focus on criminals and to crack down on certain offenders. What would you do differently when it comes to the criminal code in this country? Well, I see the criminal code as, you know, a lawyer and as a parent of young children in two ways. There's violent criminals and violent crime and property and circumstance crime. I, I, I want to work on rehabilitation for people that have a mental health issue or, or a property crime out of circumstance. I treat those differently. We've got to be focused on, on you know, improving them, rehabilitating. But if someone takes a, a life of a child or is involved in a violent sexual uh, assault things like that, they have violated their fellow citizen. And I think there is an expectation from a public safety standpoint, from a denunciation of that conduct standpoint, that we have to have much more serious approach to it. You know, they're very different when you violate the essential human rights of someone else. And so that's how I look at criminal justice. I think most Canadians do as well, because you hear outrage when child killers are, are transferred to, you know, medium or m- minimal security uh, after just a couple of years of their sentence, there has to be a, a reasonable and principled approach to criminal justice. Uh, you've talked about uh, criminalizing blockades. So we've certainly seen many of those here in BC. What would that look like? It would look like defending freedom of speech and, and the freedom to protest. That's important, but that doesn't give you a right to put thousands of people out of work. You know, there was a cement plant in my riding in southern Ontario that was about to lay off a huge number of workers uh, because of the shutdown of rail blockades in Ontario based on a dispute that originally started in B.C. That's inappropriate, it's unfair, and it should be illegal. You shouldn't be able to take your protest into acts of vandalism against our national economy. So I think most Canadians agree entirely. So things like bridges, uh, railways, airports... You can't make your political point by shutting down these public service elements. And so we'll criminalize that type of of illegal blockading. And I think that will send a signal. I I, I love a vigorous democratic debate, but you can't hurt the livelihoods of of millions of Canadians to make a point. Uh, But what do you mean when you say criminalize in that police could move in, they wouldn't need an injunction? What would actually change? Um, It would change because it would be a serious offense. Right now, the reason there isn't a move in quickly is generally it's trespass or nuisance is what law enforcement look at. And those are very, very simple, uh, you know, minor fine-like crimes. 
this will be a criminal code provision. You know, Jason Kenney introduced a similar measure in Alberta based in part on my proposals, but the federal government controls the criminal code and this type of, of action, it is kind of like economic sabotage in a way. So how can we have a responsible debate? Uh, I do that in Parliament every day with people I respect but don't always agree with. We need to be able to say, you can protest, we have a great democratic debate, but you can't, to score points, hurt the livelihoods of, of thousands or millions of Canadians. So a criminal code, more serious offence, will allow the police to, to, to move in and break it up faster. You have talked about taking a hard line with China. That's also a big issue, not only for all Canadians, but uh, here in BC, Meng Wanzhou remains uh, on house arrest. What would you do differently when it comes to Michael Spavor, Michael Kovrig still being held in China? How would you handle that file differently? Well, I would have handled it differently from the start. I was the foreign affairs shadow minister. Uh, I was very critical of Trudeau uh, not reaching out at a serious level quickly. Um, I was critical of his naive view towards the communist regime in China. I think virtually every diplomat Canada has had in Beijing in the last generation has said Trudeau is out of step and naive when it comes to China. And it's hurt us. It's hurt those two citizens. So we need a much more serious approach. I would look at, like many other countries are, using Magnitsky sanctions against certain officials in the regime, uh, certain ones that have justice attached to their title, Uh, There's no adherence to justice, uh, the rule of law, human rights in communist China, and we should not put up with that facade. So sanctioning of them, it may seem like a symbolic measure, but as Prime Minister, I would also talk to my Five Eyes and and G7 counterparts to say we we can no longer turn a blind eye to the the bad actions of, of the communist regime when it comes to the treatment of citizens, human rights, the Uyghurs, Hong Kong. Uh, you know, cyber attacks. We have to get real with China, and that will never happen under Justin Trudeau. Would you, when you talk about sanctions, though, would you go so far then uh, using that to to seize assets, to seize property of Chinese nationals living here? Um, We would look at all options. The the in my platform, I outlined uh, a number of officials that that are associated with the administration of justice, at least according to the communist uh, regime's sort of categorization of jobs, that would be a symbolic measure to, to sanction, like we have with, with other countries like Venezuela and Russia. Uh, the Magnitsky sanction technique was actually introduced by conservatives, and the, the liberals finally passed it. It's been used as a diplomatic measure to send a real signal, and I think that's where we're at with the two Michaels over 600 days in prison uh, they haven't had consular access in months because of COVID. I, I really want them to know and their families that we can stand up in a smarter, more effective way for them. Uh, going back to, to the pandemic and the economic turmoil that our country, that the world is in right now, uh, there's a new report even out just this morning from the Canadian Association of Broadcasters looking at the broadcasting industry saying that it's in dire fin- <clears throat> financial straits. I know you've talked in the past about uh, defunding or taking funding away from the CBC. Uh, do you feel like there is a need for federal help? Because it has been a contentious issue as far as federal financial help for broadcasting. Well, it it is a bit perverse that the private media world has been in trouble before COVID. Uh, Talk radio does well because you've got a lot of people captured in their car in the lower mainland. So you guys have been doing much better than private sector print and other other means. 
Justin Trudeau was putting hundreds of millions of dollars more into the state broadcaster who was competing with you for advertising dollars. And I don't think that's fair, particularly in the digital age that we're in. So uh, I've said it's time to reform and modernize. And that means taking the state subsidy out of certain areas of, of the media in CBC, English television, and namely, and, and digital, stealing all the digital ads. I think that will help broadcasters. That will help the private media landscape. And I'm willing to work with, with any sectors that have been acutely impacted uh, by COVID. My focus will be on retaining and growing jobs. Um, and that's really got to be the focus uh, over the next few years for our country. Does it get frustrating for you that no matter what you're talking about in some scenarios, there are some members of the media uh, that will still only ask you questions about what women can legally do with their bodies and marching in parades? Well, Jill, I, I'm, I'm glad you have because people uh, need to know who I am, need to know where I stand. You know, I won the conservative leadership it was the wee hours of the morning, but uh, I won with a strong mandate and I have always stood up for women's rights, for LGBT rights. I'm a liberty based conservative. I, I, I want to defend Canadians rights, m- much like I did symbolically in, in the military, you know. I I don't pick or choose what I fight for for Canada. I fight for Canadians. And so I want us to be able to focus on the economy, focus on the great discussion you and I have been having on everything from the situation with the two Michaels, the economic situation out of COVID. So if people want to sort of say, where is he with respect to to social issues or or human rights? I, I have no problem answering those questions. I'm also someone that this is refreshing. I respect people that don't necessarily agree with my views. And I think we need more of that in politics these days. All right. Aaron O'Toole, we'll leave it there. We're right out of time. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jill. That is Aaron O'Toole, the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. This is Mornings with Simi who got a COVID-19 test, the nasal swab, described it as when you're eating sushi, but you accidentally eat a whole bunch of wasabi and get that burning sensation in your nose. Not the nicest thing to have happened. And a lot of people, I think, would like to see a different kind of test, maybe a saliva test in this country. Doesn't look like that's going to be happening anytime soon, even though in the United States, five different saliva tests for the virus have been approved. Well, Dr. Michael Glogauer joins me now an advocate for using the saliva testing for diagnostics. And uh, he joins me on the line. He's a professor in the Faculty of Dentistry at the University of Toronto. Good morning to you. Good morning. How easy would it be if we're seeing this happen in other countries to have saliva testing here in Canada? So I I really think it's just around the corner. So I can tell you, um, you know, because tests need to be approved at the Health Canada level and then adopted by the provinces after that, that there's a sort of two layers of the bureaucracy or uh, to go through on a, on a governmental level. And I can tell you that after, you know, with the noise from some of the articles that have come out recently, that Health Canada is moving extremely quickly to uh, enable some of these tests to be integrated into the system. And can we tell from other jurisdictions where they're being used or do we, are we confident that they are the same reliability or, or perhaps better re- reliability than the current test? So uh, that's a great question. So uh, th- there's actually been a lot of testing, a lot of research that's come out on these saliva tests and they looked at their sensitivity and specificity, especially in the early phases of, uh, of the infection in a, in a given individual, it's actually very similar to the nasopharyngeal swabs or the brain tickles. So I, I think that there's uh, they appear to be very, very positive. 
And the timing has come into question too with getting a test. People want the results as soon as possible. Is the time of the results similar? So it's extremely similar. So it's a good question because, you know, the next barrier are these, the next level are these saliva tests, which then go through the same sort of laboratory processing as the nasopharyngeal swabs. But the, the, the next frontier after that are using these sort of saliva samples where the testing is done at source right in the palm of your hand, the equivalent to a pregnancy test. And that, that'll be the next level. These tests are being uh, developed and, uh, as we speak, but they'll be for sh- certainly more, many more months away before those are going to be readily available. Talking about uh, how people might do a saliva test and send it off to uh, an Ancestry website, you could maybe do it at home and send it off to a lab? So that's exactly uh, the, the test that we that we're that we're trying to get through Health Canada is one where the, the oral swab it's actually an oral swab test that can be done uh, by parents on children, for example, or certainly at home, and then that could be collected and uh, sort of uh, couriered to the laboratory where the, the the test would take place, and so you'd get the result now as as now within say 24 hours. And when do you think time timeline wise, when might we see a test like that or a saliva test in Canada? I, I, I would say, uh, hopefully, being optimistic, uh, within a month or two. All right. Well, Dr. Glogauer, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time and for joining us. My pleasure. That is Dr. Michael Glogauer, professor in the Faculty of Dentistry at the University of Toronto. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as we were just discussing, there will be an announcement later today at 1.45. We are going to hear from BC's Education Minister with some more details on what the return to school is going to look like in this province. And there has been a lot of talk about online learning, or at least incorporating that into some kind of learning plan. Well, Yumiko Morai is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at SFU. Uh, Joining us now to talk about what parents who opt for online learning can expect. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. Hi, well, this has been something that I know a lot of parents have been trying online learning. Can it actually work as a substitute for in-class learning? Can parents make that shift or kids, students make that shift? Um, I think that's a very sort of tricky question. And can they make a shift? I think they certainly can. But a the question is um, whether it is a sort of substitute. It works as a substitute, but it's not a sort of complete replacement of in-class learning. So I'd like to think of it as a something that should sort of stay around as a supplement to in-class learning. Online learning is, of course, playing an important role as a substitute during pandemic, but sort of the practices researchers have shown that there are also general benefits um, to online learning. For example, it gives uh, flexibility to students, like it allows students to learn and their own pace and time and place, their preference of their preference, and also expands um, possibility of social learning. They might be uh, learning alone in front of the computer, but in online learning, they can ask questions uh, to their peers. Sometimes, or sometimes uh, someone beyond their classmates, any questions they have. Um, it also um, helps them uh, connect learning to their uh, living environments, uh, which can promote engagement and deeper exploration. 
So what is the biggest challenge then, even if it's used as, along with in-class learning, what's the biggest challenge when we're talking about o- online learning? Yeah, that's a really good question. There are certainly a lot of challenges. Um, I think the most critical is that there are many families that do not have sufficient technical infrastructure to participate in online learning in the same way other kids can. And so the schools and communities need to work together to make sure this gap won't become a longer-term education gap. And it also requires a lot of agency on the student's side. Um, They need to manage their time they need to be sort of uh, self-motivated to continue learning as teachers cannot manage classrooms the same way they would do in person. So this poses challenges for parents and kids who are not used to this way of learning or parents who don't, do not have the luxury of time to support their kids. Right. Um, but I also think um, this is also an opportunity for us uh, as a, and educators to rethink how we teach and support kids in their learning process. Um, we need to prepare them to be self-directed uh, creative learners and by cultivating their interest and teaching them how to sort of really be strategic on their own development and learning. Because I'm sure it does work. Some are more able to manage their time and have that self-discipline better than others. Mm-hmm. Certainly. All right. There will be a sort of chance of gap. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. So we'll leave it there for today. Yumiko Murai, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, Yumiko Murai is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University. Curious your thoughts about this. I know a lot of parents are going to be tuning in and listening. You can hear it right here on CKNW at 145 when BC's education minister uh, speaks and talks a bit more about the back-to-school learning plan. A lot of questions still about that plan. And as Von Palmer was mentioning, the Souk School District uh, has uh, kind of put their plan out there ahead of that announcement talking about the one-eighth model and what that particular district is going to be doing. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, some good news, according to numbers released from Statistics Canada. A surge in business for restaurants looking at May to June. Still not where they were pre-pandemic, but it does appear people are returning to in-dining, in-room dining, and some other parts of the restaurant industry. Ian Tostenson joins me now, the President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. We should change our name. It's too hard to say. Beast RFA. <laughs> I'll feel sorry for you. Yeah, there you go. But, uh, I know. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, this looks like some good news. And what are these are numbers from Stats Canada. I would imagine you're hearing from actual restaurant owners and people in the business as well. Do the two match? Well, they do. So um, I'll go kind of slow because I don't want to become a statistics you know, go get this morning in the early mornings. But um, we have looked at statistics in Canada from May to June. So these are Canadian numbers. And the really good news is that um, restaurant sales are up 26% or uh, the big number, almost $4 billion uh, month over month. So that's great. But then if you go backwards and you say, well, how does that compare to last year of June last year? We're still off 37% in sales. So the good news on that front is we're moving forward. The bad news is, is that we're not anywhere near. We're both, you know, 40% lower than we were last year. Now, if you remember 
Um, March was a shutdown. Um, British Columbia did not um, shut down completely. We allowed, or Dr. Henry allowed takeout and delivery. So BC was less affected in Canada as other provinces. But the other interesting stat was, um, because, you know, we often get asked how many restaurants will make it through. We're starting to see uh, a decrease in the number of closures. So April, and, and these numbers in Canada mirror British Columbia. There was 56% 56% of the restaurants in Canada were shut down, and in May, it was um, it went to uh, just about 30%, and then in June now, uh, we're just less than 30%, so we're starting to see less closures, more businesses opening, which is a reflection of demand, and so that's good news. If you look at, uh, in the segment, because you talked about that at the beginning, Jill, um, if you, you look at full service, limited service, which is your sort of quick service restaurants, and drinking places, the largest dollar impact was in full-service restaurants, indicating that we want to go back to full-service restaurants. We miss full-service restaurants, so that's up 58%. Limited sales or, or quick service are up uh, 12%, but then they basically did not close. And if you remember, um, you know, most of those restaurants drive through, like A&W's, McDonald's, they had a very robust business uh, throughout this. Drinking establishments are way up, which is your pubs and your bars, and that's because they were just basically 100% closed. So that's not surprising at all. So those are all, these are all really good indicators that uh, the public want to get back at it. And it probably says to us that there's more consumer confidence about going to restaurants than we had, we had thought. How much of it do you think is also uh, the fact that so many patios opened, uh, the, the pro- protocols that were brought in to make people feel safe if they did return? Oh, that's a major part of it, and in fact, we're having discussions uh, uh, as as we speak with the city of Vancouver and other municipalities about, in quotation, the winter patios. How do we continue that? Because people feel very comfortable. Uh, the outdoor space is better, and uh, we're actually looking at the models, which I don't recall quite how it was done. But uh, what we did in the, during the Olympics uh, for restaurants and outdoor restaurants, and you know, it, that was a very a very good program. So that has certainly helped for sure. The problem we have here is BC sales um, year to date are down almost 37% or 40%. And I, when I looked at these numbers last night, again, this morning, it just strikes me as a bit coincidental because that's about the, the limitation on capacity that a restaurant is operating under. So if we look at, you know, uh, the regulations, which, which says no more than six people and two meters between tables, Effectively, you have a restaurant uh, that's operating at maybe 60% capacity uh, at max. And isn't it interesting that our sales in BC are off, almost off 40%. So in a world of no COVID, I would think that says to me, if we could open restaurants 100% capacity, we'd be kind of back to where we were in the last year. So that's having an effect of that closure and that physical distancing. But... Um, on the other side of that one is that's what we have to do. We're doing it very well, I think, and we'll, we'll continue to do that, although that's the gravy for restaurants. That, that extra third or 40% of capacity is where uh, money's made. So that's why patios, maybe winter patios, and continued emphasis on takeout and delivery is going to be critical for the fall months. Do restaurants, are they seeing, though, any reduction in costs as far as if they don't need, if you're not at full capacity, you probably wouldn't need full staff, or have they been able to take part in any of the federal programs to help them through this? Yeah, absolutely. The the biggest program 
uh, with the biggest benefit has been the, uh, the wage subsidy program, which is um, you know, up to $58,000. Um, the federal government does wage subsidies so that allowed restaurants to bring back a lot of people. So we uh, we got saved. We, we, we were able to see savings because of wage subsidy. Um, and we're trying to hire as many people as we want. Get this. We are actually faced. This just makes me crazy. We're starting to see a labor shortage already in restaurants. Remember, we had one before. Um, we were addressing it through skilled worker uh, immigration, and we're starting to see it in places like Victoria and Vancouver. And part of it is that the uh, labor shortage never went away. And number two is is that the effect of CERB on restaurants, we're seeing a lot of people saying, you know what, I'll catch you at the end of the summer. Uh, we've seen the Okanagan. You know, a lot of people saying we go to the beach. I don't want to work in restaurants. So it's been a it's it's been an ongoing problem, and I think we'll probably be looking. And this is so crazy, right? Uh, yeah. At at skilled immigration again in the fall to help fill these jobs. Now, uh, they are in kitchens. There's not front of the, it's not front of the house staff. It's mainly in kitchens. It's more technical, but uh, but but nevertheless, um, we are starting to see some real labor challenges already. Well, are you concerned though if that's happening with people on CERB once CERB winds down and shifts to the different programs and the changes with EI? Are you concerned that I mean we've had the the Canadian Federation of Independent Business come out saying if you're working part time in a restaurant rather than go back to work and make a couple hundred dollars, you could go on EI and make way more. Well, yeah, it, it, this makes sense to me, uh, you know, because I think you know, look, because a lot of our uh, workers they are. Um, you know, students going to school, wanting to make some extra money, flexible work schedules. So I don't really understand that. I, I mean, to me, I, I would, if I were in their situation, I would be doing all I could to be with my employer to get those hours, not just to take, you know, fill in a shift for uh, during the week to sort of top up my CERB. But um, the, the federal government going to have to deal with this. I think it's a bigger problem than that it appears right now. Uh, do you think that uh, the changes will stick around? You mentioned uh, the patios trying to shift to winter patios. Uh, restaurants have been talking about off sales being uh, a way, a source of revenue. Uh, the, this was supposed to stop in October. So how confident are you that these changes will actually stick around? The government's been in British Columbia really good about checking in with us to make sure, you know, can we, should we change the programs? And we're saying don't make any changes. Um, We've we got to be really careful. I see that Ken Peacock was talking this morning about taxes and any other increases. We've got to hold the line. We've got to continue to add, let, let these restaurants and small businesses uh, enjoy the benefits of you know, more flexible delivery and alcohol sales uh, until, you know, and indefinitely. I think we're going to see, uh, we're going to be into this for a year at least. And the patios are interesting because we're now looking at those patios that were approved to operate this year. Uh, the concept would be, let's just approve them now for next year so we don't have to do any of the paperwork when the sun shines next spring, the restaurants can reopen and away we go. So there's been really good cooperation, uh, not just with the provincial government, but, but with the, uh, the municipal government in Vancouver, uh, understanding that. Because in Vancouver, we've got a major problem. I mean, not only are we lacking business, but we're lacking customers in the, in the form of tourism and also uh, business people who aren't downtown in droves, as you're well aware. All right, uh, Ian, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for your time. Awesome, Jill. Take care. <laughs> All right, you too. That is Ian Tostenson, the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Thanks for being with us. Well, as we know, and we've talked about this on the program before, the pandemic meant a shortage of temporary foreign workers. Many people couldn't travel freely to Canada. That came as a crit- at a critical time for farmers when it came to planting and harvesting. So what does this actually mean for the future of food prices, for the future of food production right here in Canada? Well, joining me on the line is Robert Falconer, a researcher at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. Robert, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to join you. Uh, you've done some research on this because, uh, and talking about something that I think is, is seems simple enough that, well, if there's no temporary foreign workers and there are the Canadians that are out of work, why don't those two cancel each other out? But it's just not that simple. No, it isn't. There's a number of things going on here. Uh, the, the short-term trend is that a lot of people who are currently on the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, CERB, or other forms of employment insurance, are hoping to eventually return to the jobs they held before the pandemic. They're not necessarily looking forward to go on to, uh, to seasonal, highly physically intensive jobs on farms. So that's, that's the, the short-term difficulty. Longer term, however, there's a trend in the agricultural sector where a, a huge number of people have been exiting the sector since really the end of the Second World War. Uh, we're not just talking about employees, but we've lost about almost 900,000 workers from the sector since the Second World War. And most of these are actually unpaid family members and, and, and small farmers. And being able to replace those with a large share of, of domestic workers simply isn't possible in either a short or, or long time frame. So how do you, so it sounds like we already had this problem and our issues were rising before the pandemic came and made things even more difficult. So what do you think needs to be done? Well, there's a number of things um, that, that currently are already are being done. A uh, number of people will raise the idea of, well, farmers need to simply raise wages. And I, I need to say and point out there, they have been doing that for a number of years now. Um, further interventions that they could do uh, will be... Uh, Financing, of course, the, uh, the further mechanization of farms. Uh, there's a lot of innovation going on in the agricultural sector, and certainly more needs to be done there, perhaps supported through through government subsidies. Uh, short term, there also needs to be a protection for workers. Uh, the, the temporary foreign worker program has really become a pillar of the agricultural sector, and we simply can't cut off the number of foreign workers arriving in Canada unless we want to see major production cuts. So taking steps to protect worker lives um, is going to be important. BC has actually been one of the better provinces in Canada with regards to this, where they've, uh, the BC government has approached farmers and, and told them that they would help share the costs of, of housing uh, workers who are isolating in hotels. Um, but certainly more needs to be done in this sector here to, to ensure long-term viability of, of Canadian agriculture. Do you think there's a bit of a disconnect when you talk about wages and the fact that, yes, farms have been upping their wages, but at the same time, people want tomatoes at a certain price. People want food to be at a certain price, which if you want to pay people a higher salary, you want to pay these wages, does that not automatically mean that the food is going to cost more? Absolutely. Um, It also means that uh, if it becomes too prohibitive for, for producers to, to sell at a certain price, uh, they might simply cut production. And we've actually seen stories of that with the labor shortage this season uh, with farmers in, in British Columbia, Alberta, Ontario and Quebec choosing to let food rot in the fields or simply not to farm it because they simply can't, can't farm it at a certain price. So that's certainly an implication there. 
And again, there, there's a, a story here that I think is often lost when we think about why, well, why not just employ more Canadians, where it needs to again, be pointed out that a, a huge portion of this sector is actually relies on, on the ownership of small farmers and the unpaid labour of their family members, their kids, their, their spouses, uh, and other family workers. And it, when one farm buys out another farm, you don't get to keep the family that, that previously worked it, and, and trying to find Canadians to work at a certain price is, is going to be a struggle. Do we over kind of over romanticize this idea of the small farm too? And, and like you said, the family working on the farm, and this is a way of life that's maybe been passed down generations. Where in reality, we have a global market. There's a reason that we don't grow avocados here. We can import them and buy them for two bucks when they go on sale. Uh, should we be focused on what we're good at at making, what we're good at growing, rather than trying to do everything? Absolutely. I think there's a comparative advantage here in, in Canada with certain crops. A, a big one, of course, in BC is the, uh, the fruit industry. Um, over in Alberta, we have a lot of cattle ranching here as well. And I certainly think we, we focus on those. And a large number of these are actually very large industrial outfits. Um, they, that they're, they're massive enterprises and, and, uh, we, we need a certain labor force, uh, to work them. Um, and Canadians don't really want to do those jobs. Mechanization can only take us to a certain point. So at some point we need to be looking at for a labor pool elsewhere. And, and where should we be looking then? Well, the, the classic one that we've been doing since the 1960s is, uh, is places like Mexico, um, Jamaica, and, and otherwise. One thing that, that we've looked at in this paper is why not provide a pathway to some of these folks who are coming here for five, ten years uh, after repeated seasons, provide them a, a pathway to becoming permanent residents here in Canada. A lot of Canadians with Ukrainian ancestry, Mennonite ancestry, et cetera, uh, were the benefits of a, a large-scale agricultural immigration program. And uh, I think going forward, COVID-19 looks like it's going to be here for at least another couple years. Uh, workers from abroad might be a little more hesitant uh, to come in, this, in the in the next year, as they've already been hesitant to come this year. And uh, we might be competing with other countries to get a certain level of labor to come up here to Canada. Providing them the prospect of settling here permanently with their families might be something we might want to consider. Uh, do you know then, are there other countries that are more competitive on that front or do offer that to temporary foreign workers? No, it's actually not a, it's a, the trend in, mo- in most countries is actually to provide um, short-term seasonal work. Uh, visas that allow them to come up to either Canada, the United States. Over in, in the UK, it's a lot of workers from Romania and Eastern Europe. But I love them to come on a very short-term basis, but not a lot to settle on a, on a long-term basis. And I, I certainly think, can understand maybe Canadian hesitancy to, to allow someone to move here permanently, permanently if they're only here for a couple of weeks. But again, it needs to be emphasized a lot of people are, are coming year after year uh, for months at a time. And, uh, and we might, again, we might be competing in the coming years with other countries seeking to, to help bring workers to help harvest Canadian produce. Uh, in the meantime, then, do you think food prices will go up? Certainly, and I think we are starting to see that in certain sectors. I was checking the consumer price index for various food commodities the other day, and um, the big ones that we're, we're seeing is, is meat, uh, dairy, or is another one, eggs, etc. Um, I think in the as with the onset of, of fall, um, we're going to probably start seeing higher price in fruits and vegetables, um, and uh, more imported food. Uh, as as our production simply hasn't been able to keep up this year, uh, and these are I should say these are not just the regular price hikes we see uh, that happen year after year, but these are are above and beyond what we've seen. 
All right. Uh, we'll leave it there for today. Robert Falconer, thanks so much for your time. Happy to join. Thank you very much. Robert Falconer is a researcher at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. This is Mornings with Simi. The B.C. Chamber of Commerce, uh, as mentioned, has released a list of recommendations that could help the province, uh, for the province, to help businesses recover from the many negative impacts of the pandemic. And the Director of Policy Development at the Chamber, Dan Baxter, is on the line with us now to talk a little bit more about this. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, let's go through some of the, the recommendations. Uh, when we're talking about taxes, uh, one, of the, uh, one of those is a made-in-BC value-added tax. What would this look like and what would it do? Yeah, so basically it would replace the antiquated PST, which uh, is basically a tax on tax uh, throughout the supply chain for business. So basically businesses pay the tax and they can't recoup that money back into their business. So what we'd want to do is to, to basically go to some sort of system that allows business to, to basically get input credits for those taxes. Uh, but we wanted to do it in a way that's made for BC, uh, makes it work for BC business in particular. So we don't want to go back to things like HST. We want it to be made here in BC to work for BC. Uh, you've also talked about property taxes, and this has long been a concern of, of businesses and residents alike, this high idea of the taxing for best possible use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and there are a couple issues around the property tax that we were hearing from our members uh, that the best and highest use is obviously one of the bigger ones right now, especially more in the urban centre like Vancouver, where a small business, a single story, maybe it's a, a bakery of some sort, they get taxed because they're zoned to potentially be a 40-story tower. And, and of course, that means that they get taxed at that higher rate. And, of course, that's really hard if you're just a, a single-story, you know, small business on Main Street to have to pay that that large tax bill. It could be you know, anywhere from twice to three times the amount that you would be actually should be paying for your taxes. So, so that's definitely one thing when, you know, before the crisis, it was already an issue. It's obviously just exacerbated now because obviously business is not, uh, not doing as well in terms of uh, people coming through the door. Are you hopeful that you'll see movement on that? Because that is one that we've at least seen addressed in the past, or some politicians, it seem, have realized that that's not a fair way to be taxing businesses. Yeah, and, and credit to the provincial government before they've they've definitely heard we've we've been advocating this before the crisis, and and they definitely picked up on it and have and have been working with small business to figure out a solution. I think where the ask now is it's just really expediting it. We don't need they they come up with a temporary fix that that local governments would have to to buy into. I think really where we're at is we need to get to the permanent solution from the provincial government sooner rather than later. Uh, there's also a call for removing the, the PST on machinery and equipment. How big of an impact would that have? Yeah, you know, and that's our more short-term ask. You know, I think our, our recommendations are a mix of, of things that can be done in the short-term immediate to help stimulate the economy and some longer-term uh, asks that are about setting us on the right path for just long-term growth. And the PST removal on machinery, equipment, technology, that's a sh- really short-term ask. It's about $600 million dollars. But really, the, the benefit there is that a lot of you know businesses, as they look to hopefully retool, want to maybe become more productive, um, you know, as they kind of rethink their their office workspace or their 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 manufacturing space, they might need to invest in some new equipment. The, the, so that basically means that we can get a lot of, uh, of of upgrades that make workers more productive, make business more productive in the short term, which should hopefully get uh, uh, get people uh, back to work and and earning more money and and businesses earning more money so they can invest and grow. Is there more of a focus, do you think, on these short-term plans or short-term ideas to get business back and then kind of get to a point where business is is hanging on and then move to the long-term, or do they have to be done at the same time? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, some of these might have to be done in parallel. Um, you know, I think for us, there there is this this idea that we'll need probably short-term immediate stimulus, something similar to probably what we saw in the 2008 Great Recession. So that's why we wanted to make sure we had a mix of, of long-term infrastructure projects uh, on the books, because those are some of the best ways to get, you know, shovels in ground, get people working who are then spending money. Um, some ideas like the PST, Made in BC value-added tax to replace the PST, that might be something that needs to be more parked for two, three years down the road. But let's start the conversation now about what that could look like. In the short term, that's where the PST removal on machinery and equipment is an immediate boost for, for business. But there's also other ideas that we have around being more inclusive, that we want to make sure that there are people who have physical disabilities, they have access to the workplace, because there are lots of great people there who are, are looking and wanting to work to get back to work themselves. But maybe their, their workspace isn't the most accessible. So there's an opportunity to invest some money there, get some contracting, construction jobs going there to make those workplaces more accessible. And then it has that longer term benefit to get people with disabilities into the workforce and contributing as well. All right, uh, Dan, we'll leave it there. Uh, we're right out of time, but thanks so much for joining us to talk more about Thank this. You. Thank you, Jill. It was a pleasure. That is Dan Baxter. He is a director of policy development with the BC Chamber of Commerce.